All right, are we ready to get started, everybody? There we go. Now it's official. The dinging of the glass. It's in the rules. So, welcome. Those of you that are here, if it's your first time especially, we're glad you're here. We do this every week, and we are extremely thankful to Ruth's Chris. We uh, don't ask for any money for us, but all of the donations go to the ladies in the kitchen. So people ask, how much should I tip? I say, tip what you think it's worth and what you think they're worth, because it goes straight to them as a thank you. Uh, before we jump into, we're in the book of Numbers, <clears throat> we're in chapter 23, and we did half of it last week, so we're going to get to the second half, second oracle, yep. Um, before we get back into it, uh, a couple of uh, announcements of things that's going on. So my, the ministry that, I, that this is part of, partner between Roos Chris and Disciple Dojo, which is uh, my speaking, teaching ministry, we have <clears throat> made the move to um, all of our curriculum, our DVD, small group studies, individual studies, are now going to be free online. So uh, we've just started. We, that was a decision that I'm going to, uh, we're going to go over at the board meeting this Thursday. But the goal was, so those of you that don't know how this started, Disciple Dojo started as an L3C organization, which is a hybrid between nonprofit and for-profit. And the studies and the curriculum that I would produce for small groups, then we would sell it on the website and that would help fund the free stuff like this and other outreaches. Well, we moved a few months ago to, we got recognized now as a full 501c3 nonprofit. So because of that, we're moving away from uh, any kind of selling of stuff to making it free and trusting that God will provide the donors to continue making it free. So it's kind of a step of faith, but it's also uh, a desire to not have money be a reason that a church or a small group couldn't afford to do some of the studies. So as of yesterday, the last study that we did um, that I've taught, it's called To Know and Be Known, Forming a Thoughtful Christian Sexual Ethic. It was an 11-session course on everything that the Bible says about human sexuality. Because in our culture now, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of, even among Christians, of what to think about issues like marriage, divorce, um, same-sex issues, you know, fantasy, pornography, all of those issues. And, and so the, the course that we put together with a colleague of mine was how do we address this in a holistic manner? Not coming out with, hey, this is what you shouldn't do, but rather let's start where Scripture starts with what sexuality should be. And we build from there. What is marriage? Why does God say marriage is permanent? What's that like in a culture today where marriage is very impermanent? And then how does that translate into issues where we live in a world where our gospel sexual ethic is very countercultural? So we look at how that's always been the case, even going back into the Old Testament, that God's people were always called to a counterculture sexual ethic. So anyway, that whole study, it's, um, it's it, including a 50-page participant workbook. You download it free as a PDF, so just pull it right up on your iPad, your phone, your laptop, print it out, whatever. All of it's free now. So it's available on our YouTube channel, which is just youtube.com slash DiscipleDojo. So the whole course, you can watch it for free and Disciple Dojo. And um, it's also on the Facebook page as well. So those of you that are on Facebook, go to Facebook, go to Disciple Dojo, like our page, all the videos there are free, streaming. 
So we're going to do that. The next one that I'll be uploading is my Revelation, a guided tour of the apocalypse, where we walk chapter by chapter through the book of Revelation. And that'll be available free online as well. Um, I just have to upload that. Then after that will be the Bible and science, friends or foes, where we look at how science and the creation account, how have Christians handled those? And we look at the three main views Christians have held. Don't ever let anybody tell you Christians have to hold one view because there are at least three different views that Christians have held when it comes to things like evolution, Genesis, science, all that. So that'll be the third study that goes up. And then the last one will be sort of our flagship study for Disciple Dojo, which is Bible for the rest of us. How to read and interpret the Bible in a way that makes sense for all of us, not just scholars and theologians. So I say all of that to say that you can go, um, if you, you know, any time, if you have internet access, you have access to it. This is our Facebook page. It start, there's, uh, I put a fun video up that I made a while ago called Pronouncing All Those Strange Old Testament Names. It's just a little five-minute video that I just gave you. Hey, here's shorthand. It's not hard when you're reading genealogies. Just know a few rules. You can pronounce all those names really easily. But then the To Know and Be Known playlist is right below it. And you just do it, do it as a Sunday school class. Do it on your own. Download the workbook. Um, all of that's free. And it's also on our YouTube channel as well. All the videos are free. So, the only way that we can do that, and again, shameless plug, is by having people support us. So if you actually go to jmsmith.org, which is the website, there's a page you click on, Support the Dojo. And you can choose which belt level donor you would like to be. Maybe you're a white belt donor. You can only give $10 a month. That's cool. Everybody starts somewhere. And then maybe you're like, oh, I want to be a black belt donor. I'm going to get, you know. It, that's, it's just a, a kind of a fun way of just saying, hey, whatever level you can support this ministry, not only do we really appreciate it, but now you get a full tax rebate uh, refund for it since we're 501c3. So I will appeal to your base nature if I can't appeal to your altruism and your desire to support the kingdom of God. Okay, all that's out of the way. I hate doing that because it sounds like self-promotion, but I'm a one-man organization right now, so I have to do all promotion and self-promotion. We're in the book of Numbers. <clears throat> We've been going through the book of Numbers chapter by chapter, and we have come to this section in Numbers where Moses, Aaron, well, Aaron, dead. Uh, Miriam's dead. Moses is the last remaining leader. And in this section of Numbers, Moses is completely absent. So this, this section, this part of Numbers is the Bilaam saga. All right? So you have this pagan sorcerer, seer, prophet, whatever he wants to be called. And his name's Bilaam. English translations will say Balaam, and that's from later Greek, how they wrote his name, but in Hebrew, B-I-L-A-M, Balaam. And he is this uh, spiritual hitman, as we've talked about. He's renowned for his ability to call down curses or to do things to get the gods of whoever he's hired by to enact their will. So this pagan king, Balak, has seen Israel on his borders this massive horde, this invincible army that are moving through the area. And they've already wiped out two mighty armies that came out to oppose them. And again, Israel didn't go in with the charge of fight these people. They said, hey, we just want to pass through. We're, just, we're headed to Canaan. That's the land God promised to our ancestor. That's where we're headed. But these two armies, two people said, no, we're going to fight you. And they did, and Israel completely obliterated them which is humiliating because Israel is not a Canaanite nation. They are a group of slaves and a mixed multitude that came out of slavery. They have no military training. 
the only military training they have is they've spent a year camped around Mount Sinai learning how to form in their divisions. But no military exercise, no fighting, no anything like that. And so this group of slaves is basically this steamroller through the area on their way to the place that God had promised them. Now the reason they're able to do that is because God Himself is in their midst. And it's important to realize that connection. Israel is able to be victorious because God is in their midst. Not in some esoteric sense. Not in this, oh, God is within me. I have a spark of the divine. Blah, blah, blah. No, that's garbage. God is literally in their midst. He's left Mount Sinai in terms of where He met with His people. And He has moved into the center of them with this little portable Mount Sinai model called the tabernacle. And that tabernacle, as we've seen, and if you missed it, go back and do the Exodus study. It's all online, all the video and the audio from it. Follow our course. We've done everything since Genesis. Go back to Exodus and see how God was creating this little mini Mount Sinai that would dwell wherever the people went. God was becoming a mobile God. This is unheard of in the ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East, gods were not mobile. Gods of Egypt, they held it down in Egypt. The gods of Assyria, they held things down in Assyria. The Canaanite gods, they had their spots. So your gods were tied to your high places. That's what that term in the Bible means, high places. That's where you would go up to offer your sacrifices to commune with the gods to try to get their attention. So the gods were linked to their various high places. Well, Israel's God's high place was Mount Sinai. That's where He chose to step into, after 400 years of silence, step into his people's history once again and dwell with them. Mount Sinai. That's where he called Moses. That's where he said, hey, go and proof that you're going to do this is when you come back, you're going to worship me here on this mountain. So Moses did it. He brought the people there. They camped out. And the whole year that they were camped out, God was giving them instructions on how to live with a God who inhabits the high places actually in their midst. So everywhere is a high place in the God of Israel because the God of Israel is not tied to a geographic locale. Now we take this for granted because we're in past, we're post age of enlightenment people where we think, oh, God is just a metaphor for the human concept of the divine, this and that. And of course God wouldn't be tied to a locale. But that is very much foreign to the mindset of the people at this time. For them, gods were tied to places. So when Balak wants Bilaam to curse the people, what does he do? He takes him to a place where he can see part of these people he's going to curse. And he can see them spread out. And that's where they offer the seven, build the seven altars, offer the seven sacrifices, in hopes that, from, Bilaam, from Balak's mindset, he's thinking, uh, Bilaam, you have the ability to commune with the gods. So we're going to go to my god's high place, which is Bamak Baal, high place of Baal, and we're going to do this sacrifice there, and our Canaanite gods are going to hear you, and they're going to call down, you're going to call down a curse on these people. So Bilaam explains to him, it doesn't really work that way. I can only say what God tells me to say because I'm a prophet of God, even though I'm a pagan. And that's what two, three weeks ago, you can check out that lesson. How can a pagan be a legitimate prophet of God? Well, at this point right now, all we know is he's a pagan, and he's speaking to the one true God of Israel. Because God addresses him not as Elohim, God, but as Yahweh, covenant God. The God I am. So he has a relationship with the God of Israel. And he tells Balak, look, make the sacrifices, cool. I can only say what God lets me say. 
And how did he learn that lesson? A couple of weeks before, he had a jackass teach him to it. And that's what we saw. In the lesson, you can go back and check that on the site, is uh, the title of it is, She's No Dumbass. Because literally, that female donkey was not mute. Uh, God used this donkey, put words in its mouth. No, you don't have to look for archaeological or zoological evidence that donkeys can speak. None of that. But God supernaturally used this beast of burden to speak to this haughty prophet. Well, the prophet learned his lesson from that beast of burden. So now the prophet is going to be in the place of that beast, and he is going to be stuck between what God's will is and what the person who's trying to manipulate God wants it to be, which is Balak. So that's why this whole story is in there. It's not just to say, well, donkeys used to be able to talk. No, no. There's, very, there's, there's a high degree of literary artistry going on. And now Bilaam is in the position that he put his donkey in just a few chapters before. So we f- saw the first oracle. He said, this is what's going to happen. And he explained, this is why I can't curse Israel. And Balak, this is why you can't curse Israel, because God's blessed them. We talked about that last week. We talked about the ramifications for how when the covenant passes from old to new, how Gentiles are brought into that protective divine protection so that anyone who is in Israel's Messiah is also in Israel and part of these covenant promises. Uh, And so he ended it with that. And he ended it with the line. He said, let me die the death of the righteous. May my end be like theirs. This was kind of a longing way of saying, man, I hope I go out like they do. In other words, um, Bilaam is realizing that Israel's end is going to be glorious, not defeat. And um, that, by the way, those of you that are theology, church history buffs, that verse, let me die the death of the righteous, may my end be like theirs, that's the verse that John Wesley quoted at George Whitfield's funeral. Uh, his best friend, George Whitfield, he quoted that verse. They had such a high admiration for each other. And the beauty of it was Whitfield was a strong Calvinist. And Wesley was a strong not-Calvinist. And yet their friendship was, was tight uh, to the very end. So I, that's just a cool little... I'm Methodist, so I think that's cool. If you're a Baptist or Assembly of God or whatever, and you don't even know who John Wesley and those guys are, don't worry about it. But it's pretty cool that that was the verse used. So then, when he, when he gives the oracle, though, Balak says to Balaam, what have you done to me? This is verse 11. What have you done to me? I brought you to curse my enemies, but you've done nothing but bless them. And he answered, must I not speak what Yahweh puts in my mouth? All right, remember, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is a cipher for the Hebrew word underneath it is Yahweh. So it's not just a random God giving it. This is the God of Israel, the covenant God. So then, we'll get to the second of these um, oracle or proverbs. Verse 13, then Balak said to him, come with me to another place where you can see them. You'll only see a part, but not all of them. And from there, curse them for me. So he took him to the field of Zophim, which is, means the field of watchmen, or those who are watching, on top of Pisgah. Um, Pisgah is a region. It's not a particular mountain. It's not Mount Pisgah. It's a region. And it's the region where Moses is actually going to die in Deuteronomy. Moses is going to die on top of Mount Nebo in Pisgah. So just keep that in mind. That's the place where he's going to take him. Uh, so he took him there, and there he built seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar, just like last time. Now, why did he think moving locations would help? Well, ancient Near East psychology. It's geographically limited. The gods of the ancient Near East are not omnipotent. They're like, if you've ever studied Greco-Roman gods, they're kind of like people but bigger. Like, like people writ large. 
So they have all the vices of people. They're angry, they're capricious, they're lustful. Boy, they're lustful. Zeus, he got around. Um, There's all of these things that humanity has. They just saw the gods as like us, but more powerful. So what he's thinking is, okay, you can't curse them because he could see like the whole, all of them. So let me take you to a place where you can just see part of them. Because maybe the gods are just saying this is too many. So if you just see a few of them, okay, well, I can curse that many. Like I can handle, in in other words, Billam's mind, this whole cursing blessing has a very mechanistic appeal or or, 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 um, mechanistic um, aspect to it is it must be, okay, you can't curse them. Let me, let's help out. Let's help the gods out. I want to curse. Let's start small. Let's start with a baby curse. All right, let's JV curse. We'll move up to varsity after this part's cursed. Then maybe we can move around and then curse the other side. And then eventually, once we've cursed the, the defensive line, and then we've cursed the receivers, then we can finally curse the quarterback, and then the team's going to, right? Like, football season's coming up, so hopefully that helps. Um, so he says, let's do that. So verse 15, Bilaam said to Balak, stay here beside your offering. And we saw last week, stand by your offering. That's not just, hey, wait here. That's a technical, you stand by your offering. You stand vicariously in the place where your offering's located. And I will seek the gods on your behalf. So stay here by your offering while I meet with him over there. Yahweh met with Bilaam and put a message in his mouth. Again, God does not even acknowledge the sacrifices. The sacrifices mean nothing to God. And we'll see that specifically in the next chapter. Um, put a message in his mouth and said, go back to Balak, give him this message. Verse 17, so he went to him. He found him standing by his offering with the princes or the, or the bigwigs, the high chiefs of Moab. Balak asked him, what did the Lord say? What did Yahweh say? This God that, you're, that I'm trying to get to curse these people, what did he say? Verse 18, then he uttered this oracle. And again, that word oracle, mashal, it's the word for proverb, the title of the book of Proverbs. So it's like this cryptic, poetic it's not just a, hey, this, it's not a prediction. It's more than that. It's a poetic uh, proverb. He uttered this oracle, Arise, Balak, listen to, uh, arise, Balak, and listen. Hear me, son of Zippor. Remember last week, Hebrew poetry, tripartite or bipartite. So the first line says something, the second line clarifies that same thing. It, it repeats. It sounds repetitive in our ears, but this was how they memorized so much writing in the Old Testament. Repeating it, repeating it saying the same thing twice, sometimes even three times. So, arise, Balak, and listen. Hear me, son of Zippor. That's actually a chiasm, A-B-C-B-A, but don't worry about that because that's for nerds. Um, Verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I've received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot change it. Now, Already, some of you that are knowledgeable about the Bible are going, wait a minute, wait just a minute. God does change his mind. We've read in Genesis and in Exodus how God has changed his mind. He'll do it again in the book of Samuel. God will change his mind. He'll literally use those phrases. And so before you throw up your hands and say contradiction, what you have to realize is, one, this is an oracle, not a systematic treatise. God acts in ways that are consistent. But there are occasions when God himself specifically breaks his genuine or general way of acting 
in particular circumstances. So think of the book of Jonah. This says, if God is to speak it, does He not act? Well, in the book of Jonah, God's message to Nineveh was, hey, 40 days and Nineveh is toast. That's a paraphrase. But that's what it was. Nineveh repents. It doesn't happen. The judgment doesn't happen. So yes, God changed His course. God didn't say, if Nineveh repents, then it won't be destroyed. So that's a case where literally, if you press for wooden literalism, you do not take into account prophetic hyperbole, uh, emotive language, all things being equal, this type stuff. If you press it for literalism, which internet skeptics love to do, you can look up all the contradictions in the Bible, there's over 800 of them listed, they'll say, well, here's a contradiction. Completely missing the point. This is God's general description. He's not fickle like the ancient Near East gods. He's not like the gods of Moab. He's not like the gods of the Midianites. He's not like the gods of Assyria or these other guys. He's not fickle. When he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. However, within that, there is an implicit but if that's implied. And you only get that if you read the whole Old Testament. Later he'll tell the prophets, if I say calamity is going to come on a city, and if that city repents, I will relent from bringing the disaster. That's a case of changing his mind. At least that's how it appears from the human realm. So we have to be careful when we're looking at these passages that can be pitted against each other to say, oh, well, he said he didn't change his mind, but then later in Samuel he says he has changed his mind about King Saul. No, that's, that's, that should jump out at you. The times when God does change his mind, or it says when God was sorry he created them, like it does in Genesis 6, those should jump out at you because these are the norm. Does that make sense? God will say things like, he's against divorce, but yet in Jeremiah, he says to Israel, I'm divorcing you. I've written you a certificate of divorce. This marriage is over. He says that. Now, most of us don't study Jeremiah. We don't ever get to that part. All we know is 29.11. I know the plans I have for you. No, he divorces Israel. Flat out divorces them. So God will do things that are against his character sometimes, but not arbitrarily, always in relation to how people are responding to him or not responding to him. And the only reason I'm beating that dead horse, well, donkey, to death is because it's important in how you do your biblical theology to not take verses out of their context and isolate them as universal maxims and then just throw your hands up when you come across something that seems to contradict it. But to realize this is telling a story. And he is speaking, this is how God is. So on those times when God acts in a way that's contrary to this, that's the literary equivalent of a megaphone screaming at you. Pay attention. This is important. So that's the first part of this proverb. I've received a command to bless. He has blessed. I cannot change it. Verse 21, no misfortune is seen in Jacob, no misery observed in Israel. Again, see how Israel and Jacob are synonymous? Israel is the guy who used to be named Jacob. Right? But in this passage, those are functioning as ciphers for the whole people. Super important to remember this. So important. Because in our mind, we think Israel, immediately we think country or group of people. No, Israel was a person. The destiny of the nation was the destiny of that person and their offspring, their seed. So anything that's said of Israel is only true because someone is the seed of Israel. And Jesus will have a lot to say about who is and who isn't a seed in the New Testament, especially in John. 
where the literal seed of Abraham will say, we have Abraham as our father. And Jesus will say, no, your father's the devil. Because for Jesus, he says, God can raise up seed of Abraham from these rocks. So never let ethnicity or parentage determine someone standing in God's favor. No misfortune is seen in Jacob. No misery observed in Israel. Yahweh their God is with them. The shout of the king is among them. This is the thing. God is their king. They don't have a king. So the shout among them is of Yahweh, the king. And that's what our study two years ago, Exodus, God is king. That was the title of that study. That's the whole thing that God's been trying to show all along. All these other kings in the world are imposters. They're, they're at best, they're vice regents. At best. The shout of the king is among them. God brought them out of Egypt. They have the strength of a wild ox. Or, that can read in Hebrew, God brought them out of Egypt like the horn of a wild ox. Meaning, God brought them out with the strength of a mighty ox. The question in this is, does the ox refer to the people or does it refer to God? Well, the answer is kind of both. Because if the people are walking in covenant with God, His strength becomes their strength in relationship. And it's interesting and ironic because back in chapter 22, when Balak first called Bilaam, he said in verse 4, the Moabites said to the elders of Midian, this horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. In other words, they were compared Israel to like an ox that just comes through and eats everything. And, and here, Yahweh threw the mouth of Bilaam and saying, oh yeah, oh yeah, they're not just going to lick it up. They have the strength of a mighty ox. They have the horn, and horn is a metaphor for strength in the Hebrew Bible. So, he goes on to say, verse 23, there is no sorcery against Jacob, no divination against Israel. In other words, this whole enterprise is futile. It's not going to work. The people rise like a lioness. They rouse themselves like a lion that does not rest until he devours his prey and drinks the blood of his victims. So this rabble of slaves are now being described as two of the mightiest animals in the kingdom, in, in the world at the time, the ox and the lion the domestic, and the, the uh, predator. The two symbols of strength in the ancient world. You think strong, ox, lion. So those are the images that God uses to describe Israel. In verse 25, then Balak said to Bilaam, neither curse me at all or, or neither curse them at all or bless them at all. In other words, now he's getting frazzled. Like, whoa, you're doing the opposite of what I called you in here to do. So if you're going to bless them, just shut up altogether. Don't say anything, because I'm wanting you to curse, but you're actually blessing, which is cursing me. And again, this is not ceremonial. This had tangible power in the world of the ancient Near East. They, whether it's just what they believed, or whether that's how things worked, or whether they still work that way today, these utterances were not idle. They were not just symbolic. They had real weight to them. And Billam answers, verse 26, did I not tell you? I must do whatever Yahweh says. So then verse 27, then Balak said to Bilaam, okay, come, let me take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God to let you curse them for me from there. And Balak took Bilaam to the top of Peor, overlooking the wasteland, or overlooking the desert. So now, let me go to the place that overlooks the haunt or, or the, 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 the realm of the demonic, the realm of the, the wasteland, the nothing but evil spirits live out there, and, and Israel's kind of coming that way. So let me, take you, let me take you to a place where maybe your power levels will go up a little bit, or my desire for cursing will happen. Let me take you to a cursed place so then you may be able to curse these people. 
So you see how Balaam's uh, mind's working through all this. And so we'll get to chapter 24 next week because we are out of time. Um, come back next week. We'll finish up the third oracle. And then he's going to throw one extra. Buy three, get one free, right? He's going to throw in a little extra curse. Um, or it's actually not even a curse. It's going to be a promise. And then it's going to have some curses in it. But that's where it'll take. So right now what's on track to be like he's being like the donkey was. And the donkey had three instances where it encountered the Lord. Now Bilaam is going to have his three. And then there's going to be a fourth one. Meaning like he's even adding on to what the whole donkey thing was setting him up for. So come check it out. It'll have huge New Testament ramifications next week. Um, if you want some seconds, we've got plenty of food left. Otherwise, have a great week. We'll see you next week.